Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Hacker Noon podcast. This week on Planet Internet, we're talking about Google, Web 3.0, Starlink, and what the hell Elon Musk is talking about when he says Bitcoin is not decentralized. I'm joined today by David Smook, the CEO of Hacker Noon, the big boss with his new business cards. Get them while they're hot. No, these are old (laughs) business cards that I can't give because I don't meet people in person anymore. All right. Now they're free. And we also have Amy Tom, our lead podcast host and editor at Hacker Noon. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. Hello, hello. Hello. Why don't we start with Google? And as you can see on the screen, this is the fancy Google News tech page on Hacker Noon. What's going on with Google this week, Amy? So Google just introduced a new or maybe rolled out a policy about their remote work plan. So they are anticipating that 20% of their employees will continue to work remotely post pandemic or post like return to the office. So even after they roll out the full return to the office plan, 20% of people will still continue to work fully remote, they say. So I think that's interesting because I love working from home. I love work remote. And of course, with Hacker Noon, we are an entirely remote company. We have employees from all over the world. This is definitely good news for me, I think, personally, just because I would love to see the increase of work from home and work remotely for just like big companies like this to sway all of the organizations to continue this trend post pandemic. I will say from my security minded standpoint as well, I think this is good news for the security industry because it continues to solidify the need for security for remote employees. So it's just a good use case of remote work continuing to stay and a need to invest in security solutions for that purpose. What are your thoughts, David, as the CEO of a remote company? I guess I do run a remote company. Are we not connected? We feel pretty connected, don't we? We feel connected for sure. I think so, yeah. So Google's about 140,000 employees. So this is basically saying it's a decent number of employees, but it's still like the vast majority, 80%. They're, they're saying there's an end here and you're going to have to come back into the office and we're still planning for that. I think it's the number's going to get bigger. I think the next announcement is that a larger percentage can stay uh, remote for a longer period of time. So that's where I just think it's headed. It would be nice to have more like you see people building satellite offices like Facebook building outside Denver here in Colorado. I've been thinking like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Hacker Noon had three random offices like these tiny we could oh, we happen to pass through Tokyo, Edwards, Colorado in Vancouver and we have these little offices that like yeah. could be a station or maybe somehow they could make a little money so sorry David the CNBC article touched upon this a bit it says that and I think like logistically it just makes sense because you have to maybe still consider social distancing have that be effect so less people in the office in general so they were saying that 60% of people will go back to the office 20% of people will work from a new office so they're building new offices and then 20% of people will be the people that work from home forever so yeah new offices for 20 percent of the employees as well i think that's going to be interesting too so yeah, more satellite offices yeah and having people move more fluidly and say hey we i wonder what studies they did of looking at productivity of seeing how these people go remote and say hey 
it's worth spending because 20% people, and then you have to social distance the office more, they're making a serious real estate investment, which like they're probably going to own a lot of real, a lot more real estate now, which is seems to be also a good move for a lot of these bigger companies. Like you see houses in America being bought by corporate interests for cash and they're like buying up land right now. So I, I think that type of behavior isn't a bad move for Google in terms of just owning more property as part of their whole portfolio of what Google is. And I, I'm curious if the, the people will want to go into the office again, or hey, going into the office means twice a week and you have your big meeting days and you go down and then the rest of it, you're back on your own where you want to be. So, so there's a lot of value in just having a good space to work. And I'd uh, yeah. like to pose two follow-up questions to that. So you, you said that 20%, it's still relatively low because 80% are going in. What in your mind is the ideal percentage for most companies or what percentage do you think it'll become eventually? And on top of that, what do you think is the ideal hybrid situation? Going into the office once a week, staying home four days a week, or what do you think is best? It depends on what the company does. It's really, it's naive to say that you should set up, like how you're not going to be a plumber and work remotely, are you? Like it depends yeah. what your business does. But if you are, because you're never truly digital, like even look at us, we have to set up to take meetings. We have to make sure we have certain times. Like there's things where we need a setting. And so that's uh, never going to end. Personally, I'd like to uh, go work at an office maybe a couple days a week and have a different kind of nice desk and feel a little official and maybe put on a tie. No, not, not a tie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so with Google, I think it's just this hybrid. I'm going to watch closely and I'm going to see, hey, does this work? Because if it works, companies are going to imitate it. And they're going to say, hey, we have this place you can work. It's more spread out. It's a little more lax. Um, and so, but that means they're going to have to pay for more space, which like you don't really want to do as a startup. Mm -hmm. I have a second question that I want to pose to Amy first. It might freeze you because this kind of coming out of left field. What do you think about the idea that the fact that these tech companies have the option to work remote, the fact that we have the option to work remote puts people who perhaps have lesser education, the blue collar workers in a more dangerous state than people who had a higher education and could work remotely. Do you think like the idea that the, the middle class or the upper class can work remote and therefore be more protected from things like COVID is a problem? And do you think this is going to worsen like the distinction between middle class and lower class, not just economically, but safety wise in general? I don't know what you mean, like economically and safety wise in what way? Because of the fact that we can work from home is because we work for a tech company. We, we got a university education, presumably is why we got hired here as well. But the people that don't have to work in the construction sites, they work in fast food restaurants. Those people have no option to work remotely. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I feel like the implications of working remotely don't really impact like economics that much or societal impact that much. It's more so just like having the income in general. Where you work, I don't feel like will impact people economically, if that makes sense. Cool, cool. I think, yeah, I should have explained it a bit more. The, the fact that we can work from home, when I switched from working from the office to working from home, personally, my lifestyle improved drastically because it's not just about where you work. It's also about how drastically your everyday changes. When you had to commute, you had to wake up an hour earlier. You had to sleep an hour earlier. Maybe you had to prepare lunch. All of these things 
I think they build up over time. And to me, for example, just like a small example, I save $10 every day because instead of buying lunch, I'm, I'm making lunch. I see what you mean. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And I think mm-hmm. that there are other benefits of working in an office setting or in a fast food restaurant or something like that, that maybe you're not considering like the socialization yeah. impacts and like be- being outside and seeing people like whereas if you're isolated that has a lot of long-term impact on mental health the studies are showing so i think there's mm-hmm. trade-offs it sure. also got me thinking about just how important it is to be master of your routine like when you understand mm-hmm. your routine it doesn't matter where you're going it matters that you understand it and that whenever you like get that rhythm and the routine itself isn't a reluctance you don't have to think on tuesday what do i do you know what you're doing when you wake up and you're ready for the like you don't the more little decisions you have to make before you get to your important work the more you've spent your energy making those little decisions and avoiding the work and so if you get to the work when it's coming and you start working at the right time i think you're very productive and so that God. if you're remote, you control the routine entirely. So if you're not good at that, <laughs> your production is going to go down. That's what the workplace provides, all that structure of trying to get the most out of their workers. Mm-hmm. For sure. So we talked about Google, everyone. And uh, the next article we're going to talk about is Web 3.0. And part of it is the desire to move away from an internet owned by just the billionaires of the world, the top tech companies of the world. What's uh, this article about, Amy? if it eventually loads. Yes. So this is talking about the internet centralization and web 3.0. It goes into web 1.0, web 2.0, and what we aim for in web 3.0 and why it's so urgent. So this article I thought was interesting. It was written by Anton on Hacker Noon. And he goes into like the Syrian gas hoax and things like that and the importance of having an open internet. So I definitely agree with a lot of the points that he makes and it's in general just moving towards a more decentralized internet. Yeah. What do you think about this, David? Necessary. Yeah. <laughs> it's... uh very necessary. I think there's a good example towards the end. I'll I'll read a little section here. The same can be said of Facebook and Amazon, which digitally burnt more books under its Kindle system than have ever been burnt under a totalitarian regime as Amazon bundle handles 83% of ebook sales. So as you look at like that Burning, this was a wild idea of burning books is just historic of the symbol of what a regime has full power. They can control what stories are allowed to be told and what stories are not. And the authors make the argument that because Kindle controls 83% of ebook sales, if Kindle deems a good or a book or a story not (laughs) in their store for some reason, it's massive impact on ability to access that story. The positive side is there is the other 17% of the market or the market isn't even measuring free usage. Because this stat, I think, is for paid sales. And so a lot of things that get banned are actually available for free. And the author is just trying to get it out there. So the stat is a little misleading, but um, thinking from the perspective of who has the right to block stories from existing, it is pretty scary how centralized it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also, I want to point out that his definition of Web 3.0 here, it marks uh, a reliance on AI to connect users to more relevant and meaningful data. 
I think that's a bit simplified. And I also think that I'm a bit skeptical about how decentralized this stuff really is and how people misconstrue that it's decentralized because just because we move from web 2.0 to 3.0, less reliance on human actors and more reliance on AI actors, you still have to trust that AI is not biased and you have to trust the person that created it. You have to trust mm-hmm. the data that they took, which was probably all, compiled all by humans. Exactly. Yeah. It can't do anything without a bias. Like it has to exactly. have a reason for making a decision. So that's thing. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel like this is, he does say it's a theoretical framework, but it's still too simplified for me to be like the solution to our problems. You know what I mean? Yeah, the piece that I found interesting that I don't know if I have a question about it, but the part where he goes into the different kinds of solutions that are available, like Textile Photos as a decentralized version of Pinterest or Instagram, DTube as a decentralized version of YouTube. And it really Mm -hmm. just sparked my imagination of what Web 3.0 could look like. I guess I never really thought about it or decentralized versions of different platforms and these kinds of things like what would a decentralized Instagram be like? I can't even imagine it because we've gone so far into this Facebook owning all of the social media platforms that I don't even I can't even fathom. (laughs) I think like um, not trying to promote them purposefully, but we did an AMA with Den earlier, Den.social their framework is more towards a decentralized version of social media in which an algorithm doesn't decide what's on the top of the page. The people do, the people of each group. Mm -hmm. And it's not like people have unlimited reign to just upvote and comment on whatever they want. The framework then set out is pretty interesting. You have a limited amount of their token, which is a NRG, and that allows you to do things like upvote, comment, and, and when that runs out, you can't do anything for the rest of that day. So it gives people like, I guess, the incentive not to just upvote and like everything yeah. and really spend your energy wisely on that specific platform. So that's one version of how a decentralized Instagram could look. But of course, Den is still new. It's not perfect. They have a lot of things to work out. Mm-hmm. And you can't, there can't be zero algorithm. Like someone still has to write an algorithm for this thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And at the same time, though, again, I'm skeptical about saying that these platforms are all decentralized. Like, they're still made by a person. We Like, we still, as the user, have to trust that this group of people made it as, de- as decentralized as possible. You know what I mean? So there's always still a level of trust there that has to happen. And one more notable approach here, because the newsfeed algorithm, it's not the problem it's an algorithm. It's a problem that the algorithm is a black box. And we don't know why this post appeared here. Why did this ad appear here? Like, I should know that information. Every time it enters my newsfeed, I should have the right to know why. And not just, hey, I followed this person three years ago. Why are you bringing this content to me now? So that's minds.com. One thing, they tried this. They Their features are almost the same as Facebook in terms of functionality. But with the newsfeed, they just went pure reverse chronological. And they place an ad like every 10 or 15 items. And so the idea is if you scroll the news feed, you get it's just reverse chronological and the ad has no less targeting. I'm not sure about that, but one way to look at it. But then all these social networks, why these algorithms rose up is because they follow too many people. You only are going to consume so much content and then they want to get you the content that engages the most. And then you get in that cycle of this is here. If I click, yeah. you put it here. If I don't click, you don't put it there. It's like, oh, that's a bad circle. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Speaking of trust and trusting the internet, 
uh, a certain entrepreneur and internet mogul wants to change the way we access the internet. We're, of course, talking about Starlink, and this is another article on Hacker Noon. It's called How Starlink is Disrupting the Internet. What is this article about, David? All right. I'm just going to read an excerpt here, starting from the SpaceX. So SpaceX, in a battle for the billionaires, Elon Musk beat Jeff Bezos for this massive government contract to take Starlink to the next level. And SpaceX plans to host, uh, reading from the article, 42,000 Starlink satellites in space to bring its internet service to not only every corner of the world, but to airplanes, RVs, and remote locations. So internet everywhere. I don't know if everyone's ever done Wi-Fi on a plane. It's, it's a 30, it's, it's not a 50-50 crapshoot. It's more like a 33 crapshoot. If you buy it three times, you get it once. Interesting. They're going to make this giant web around planet Earth where you can get internet anywhere. So... The company uses Falcon 9 rockets to send 60 satellites in a batch and now has over 1,400 satellites in space ready to function. They got from the government, they got 900 million for this, and they're going to maybe move all the way up to 20 billion to fund, to basically bring internet to all of the rural world is a grand vision here. I have many questions that I want to post to both of you. First, I also want to say this is uh, written by Kunshan, one of our blogging fellows at Hacker Noon. This, when I read this, and uh, I've, we've obviously been following Starlink a little bit, but I read more about it for this podcast. It scares me a lot because reading it, it just sounds like Terminator. It's, this sounds like an AI surrounding the world. And I even looked into it, not too deeply, but I looked into space law and I was wondering how this was even legal. If you're covering the world, does, does every country have to approve this? You know what I mean? If you're going to put it in every country's airspace? Yeah, but what do you think about this, Amy? Do you, do you think it's a good thing or do you trust it or do you feel like... People are just jumping the gun because it sounds cool and we haven't gone through all the legal stuff yet. Yeah, I'm hesitant to jump on the bandwagon of anything that Elon Musk does. But in theory, it sounds amazing. Imagine having internet access in all of these remote locations where internet is not available and the humanitarian aspects that would come with that. Granted, of course, these people have to get access to devices as well to be able to access the internet in the first place, but having internet access in more remote locations, I think, will go a long way in terms of education and even like health and society to connect more people together. So I think in theory, it sounds amazing. In actuality, it sounds horrific, like terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, to, to move off of Amy's point there, one of, another one of our blogging fellows is in Nigeria. And we, I talk to her frequently about, she often apologizes saying, oh, sorry, the internet was out. Sorry, the electricity was out. And there are these rural parts of the world, these developing countries that would greatly benefit from this. But David, what do you think about the fact that if this is huge, let's say 80% of the world starts to use Starlink, isn't it scary that one company owns 80% of the world's access to internet and access to working? Yeah, that would be extremely scary. <laughs> a terms and condition like, nightmare. Like, how do you, what are you giving up by joining this network? And if you, if the alternative is no access to knowledge in the internet or knowledge on the internet, you're probably going to not care so much. Yeah. And the terms are going to be very favorable to the provider because the user is getting something for free and there's not enough entities in place to protect users as groups. You need governments. You need someone to say, hey, I represent all these people and you can't push them around because you're the only access to the knowledge. So like that, I would hope that it would build as a more open ecosystem 
And okay, if Starlink's providing the hardware and the satellites, maybe you could choose different providers. And if you have competition at the provider level there of saying, hey, other firms are paying for the Starlink infrastructure and by the government being one of the people to invest in this, they do things to ensure there's competitions at each stage. Because once the competitive moat of owning all the satellites is absurd. And if there's no control over your moat, you're not going to then compete on satellites like or you can but it's going to be very you're talking trillions of dollars to like in a competition yeah when i get into these fearful moments i do hope that competition can come in and say like this isn't the only option you have for hopefully there's other and there's other solutions for building rural internet that have nothing to do with satellites like that there's different wet mesh networks and stuff like that where hey if both of those are around that's a good thing. And they can compete and say, I don't want that anywhere near me. Get the, get these satellites out of here because I have a good mesh network. Scary, yeah. but not like the end of the world yet. Yeah. I'll it's let you more... guys know if it's the end of the world. Please okay, do. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like obviously the, the SpaceX and uh, Elon Musk market it as a way like this is going to help so many people. This is going to help people in developing countries. But I still think we should be really... Did Not you skeptical, see, but yeah, I think it was Kingsman. This is a very similar plot. Did you yes. see that movie? Exactly. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> you give away free internet to everyone, and then yeah. they kill them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if SpaceX starts giving away free smartphones, then we know that's the start. Speaking of Elon Musk, he was also in the news not about Starlink and SpaceX, but actually about cryptocurrency. This was an article on the Entrepreneur. It was about his remarks about Bitcoin, the fact that, and about how he's been promoting Dogecoin, but I'll let David introduce us to this one. Yeah. So this is actually Peter McCormick, who's a former Hacker Noon or old time OG Hacker Noon contributor. Before he even launched his podcast, he was publishing posts on Hacker Noon. And he's the one who did this, basically this rant against Elon Musk promoting Dogecoin and saying, hey, the core of the RAN is like a lot of people are taking these things very seriously and building out these whole ecosystem of developers. And Dogecoin is the one currency that started as a complete joke that the founders don't want anything to do with. Or, and then it's based on a meme. And to Musk, I think the appeal there is currency is just what people believe. It doesn't matter if it was invented on a meme. It matters that it has a value today. And Peter McCormick is taking more of a, this is a serious thing. And we're trying to reinvent the system and get rid of all these central entities and these the, the ecosystems that are actually being supported. That's what you should talk about and keep this positivity. Musk, he's getting in the news too much for me. It's just a little too much. Did he invent Bitcoin? Probably not, but there's a Hacker News story about it. How much Dogecoin is he holding? I don't know, but it's probably a lot. He's on Saturday Night Live talking about it. Part of the the big news of the story as well is that Tesla apparently got rid of all of their Bitcoin. I don't know if it was 100%, but it was like a large percentage of it. And Elon Musk is talking about going all into Dogecoin. I also feel like, I always tell people, it just feels like to me, he's trying to do a quick pump and dump. He's trying to manipulate the market with these tweets. His stint on SNL wasn't funny at all. Even though I know what Dogecoin is, it was zero funny. It was total cringe. But I feel like that's what he's doing. And I did read this tweet thread and people were just ravaging him. And and I feel like he was losing most of the arguments. One of the major arguments he said was at one point, there was this coal mine that went down in China, I believe. And then Bitcoin's hash rate dropped 30% just because of the concentration of Bitcoin's miners in China. And his tweet was, does this sound decentralized? 
And then the rebuttals were like compared to Dogecoin, Bitcoin is like exponentially more decentralized. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that I thought that was so interesting too. I also picked up on that same piece of the article where he talked about how the Bitcoin rate dropped because of that one news piece. Yeah. And and after he went on SNL, Dogecoin also dropped. So it's, oh, that doesn't really sound like decentralization either, Elon Musk. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's probably still a good thing for cryptocurrency that Musk is talking about it all the time. Like at some level, it could just be good if all the if business leaders are all talking about it. It's it's validating it. Like it because yeah. I who knows what there's the point is that there should be many cryptocurrencies and it should be very easy to use based on what you want to use it for, and your transaction fee should approach zero. And if that's if those are the values, it doesn't matter what coin it is. But it's also like he's changing the prices of individual coins with the statements. Like it's just yeah. like, yeah, that seems like, like manipulation. I like going off of what you said, the amount I'm sure just from his tweets about Dogecoin, the amount of people entering cryptocurrency must have gone up. I, I just oh, see yeah. it on my own Facebook feed, people talking about Dogecoin because of Musk's uh, to, uh, statements or because of his appearance on SNL and people wanting to get in and have Dogecoin as the first cryptocurrency they buy. It makes me laugh, but it's all, it is also good that he's spreading awareness about crypto in general and people are getting more interested in it. So there is that aspect. But do you feel like with Elon Musk, because he's so big, even though his main push is decentralization, his clout will always bring anything that he puts forward to centralization? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, he's so big at this point that anything he advocates for will just become centralized. (laughs) Hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the centralization aspect, but... I do agree that if you're an influencer with one tweet, you can change like the price of something by 10%. It's like, you got to be really careful about what tweets you're making. Yeah. And he's been fine before, like, but it's 60 or 70 million. If they're like, not saying that's insignificant. It's just saying like, how much money can he make on a tweet? Yeah. So that's, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not complaining because I made like a couple hundred off uh, Dogecoin because I bought it on a whim. So thanks for pumping that up for me. To wrap things up, I wanted to ask you both a kind of larger question. In general, what we talked about today was decentralization and how the world is becoming more decentralized, whether that be being able to work from wherever you want, being able to pay with whatever currency you want, having an internet that's more open or an internet that's uh, free even. Do you actually think in 2021 that the world has become a lot more decentralized than it was four years ago? Or do you think this conversation is just starting? And um, if it's the latter, what major things do you think need to change in the next five years to get towards true decentralization? We could start with uh, David, if you don't mind. Cool. There's definitely more. I think the path to, I I take like a more of a micro view here of like, the path to decentralization is small units that are economically sustainable. Why can't there be a bunch of small internet businesses? Why can't my whole town learn how to do something on the internet? And, oh, I just go in my home and I log in. I work on it. I have my three teammates and I run a four-person company. Makes more than it spends. And it's because the, it's hard to compete. It's hard to offer a service that competes with a 400-person company. But as people get more specialized, I think it can happen more. And I, I would love for an economy to emerge where... The percentage of profitable small business in relation to the population is much higher. And that's where you get real competition because if you're 
Kindle and Amazon, how am I going to launch an ebook platform <laughs> to compete with yeah. you? You have all the partnerships, you have all the market share, you have all the sales, you have all the rights. You can bully me out if you want and say, if you do a deal with David, I won't do a deal with any of your customers again. So there's like a lot of just imagine playing at a poker table where you have a million dollars and the other person has 10. Like yeah. <laughs> the first bet, you force them all in and then they're, yeah, they're out of business. <laughs> like that's that's the level that competition is right now with, with internet companies. And I mean, it's at 10 years ago, I remember like putting our first website on and it's like a huge deal, like installing WordPress, hiring a WordPress developer. You can't even control this. You're like trying to learn HTML. So there's like the amount of plug and play solutions and more ways to do web monetization online and make have your site make money, I think are all good things. But yeah, this is a hundred year battle. This isn't a five year battle or a one year battle. Like the path to internet that works for the people using it is, yeah, it's very long. It's, it's not something that it's not going to be decided in my lifetime, in my opinion. Oh, I, I hope that's not true. But <laughs> what do you think, Amy? Are we more decentralized now than we were, we were five years ago? Yeah, that's interesting, David, because I was going to say one of the pieces that I resonated with in the Web 3.0 article on Hacker Noon was that he talked about how he thinks that there will be a catalyst of some sort in the future eventually, where decentralization will be almost forced upon because of some sort of incident or some kind of catalyst that will push everyone towards decentralization. So I'm more in the camp that's going to happen within our lifetime, not necessarily within the next like five, 10 years, but like within the lifetime for sure. As for decentralization of the past five years, I think, yeah, probably more, there's been more of a push towards it. People are waking up towards it more. Have we actually like seen or reap the benefits of that? I don't know. I don't think so yet, but I think we're starting to move towards more of a decentralized need or desire in the Mm -hmm. marketplace. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. And I think if there ever is a catalyst that would push this change faster, I think it would have to be in the government. J- just because what David said, we can do it slowly, but if you want to do it quickly, there has to be a large change in legislation that limits the power any one company can have on any part of the market or any part of the internet space. That's the only way I think it could happen other well, than our, our version of what is the meteor hitting earth. That's like a catalytic change of like planet mm-hmm. earth of like the dinosaurs going extinct. Like sometimes, like, what'd you say? Like a global pandemic. Yeah. But I, I think <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's still going on. Uh, or it could be if like something major happens, like America hires uh, TV stars, its president, and then people decide that a decentralized government is better than the current form of democracy. (laughs) That could change uh, a lot of the way we do things on the internet as well. Hey, don't bring the internet troll into this. More than we bargained for. Exactly. All right. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. Thanks for listening up to this point. This uh, podcast was hosted by me, Amy, and David Smook, and hosted by Hacker News. (laughs) All right. Please uh, sign up for David's free business cards. Bye. Bye. Bye.